we are continuing with our eight essential elements of the biblical Christian gospel series. We are on element five for approximately the 10th, ninth week. And uh, this is the 29th lesson overall in the series. And we're probably uh, nearing the halfway point. We'll probably, at least by lesson 40, we'll be halfway home. So hang in there. This will be well worth it. So if you look at Roman numeral one, you'll see the eight essential elements. Many, I'm not alone in this, many people have said that progressively since uh, approximately the 1890s, by the time the full effects of what was called the fundamentalist modernist controversy had kind of worked its way through the church, that modern ways of looking at scripture had resulted uh, among conservatives in a, in a very reduced version of Christianity and a very reductionist view of the gospel. And so what we're really attempting to do here is put some fullness back into the biblical gospel. That's the, uh, that's the point. We spent Roman numeral two, the first 20 messages dealt with elements zero through four. And we uh, really tried to talk about the fact that, uh, you know, there's a concept called reading the reverse negative. If you say, if the Bible says thou shall not kill the reverse negative, reading the reverse negative means that uh, people kill. And it also means that God values life. So uh, if there is good news, then there must be bad news. And it is uh, the primary reason that we Christians are finding it hard to understand why nobody's interested in our good news is because both the secular world and the secular humanistic ideas of the last century and a half and the church ideas of the last century and a half have negated the bad news. And, uh, you know, if uh, Roy sets uh, 12 new records this week in his sales and uh, 20, 20 other great things happen in his life and so forth and he goes to the doctor for a checkup, and the doctor says, uh, I think you're going to live another 100 years or so. And then I say, uh, Roy, you really need to hear some good news. He'd be like, you're, you're kidding me, right? Uh, <laughs> uh, so if we don't know the bad news, the true news of really who God is and who we are in relation to him, uh, we won't be interested in the, in the, in the good news. And so that's kind of what we looked at for the first 20 messages uh, since then. And, and so, you know, we have all these gospel conceptions that are designed to say that Jesus is the mediator and the bridge of the gap, but that no one wants to hear that if they don't think they've got a gap. If they think, I'm okay, you're okay, life's working, I found ways to cope. So... Uh, now, in the last eight weeks, we started uh, an introduction to the subject of Christology and theology. There's various subsections, and theology is not a big word. It just means the study of God's Word. And within the study of God's Word, you can break it down into topics, and one topic is Christology, the study of Jesus Christ. So, 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 6 says that God, our Savior, who is Jesus Christ, desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, for there is one mediator, you might say there's one bridge, there's uh, one reconciler, 
also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself. He didn't come to serve, be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Excuse me. So um, as we get into this uh, thing of Christology, now we're moving down to Roman numeral four. Jesus at a certain point took the disciples. I can't get into all the reasons why you can listen to my uh, podcast from way a while back called Mountains in Matthew. But he took them to the base of the mountain that King Herod had his castle on. Uh, and it was very symbolic and intentional. And he said, who do people say that I am? And uh, because everyone has to have an opinion about who Jesus is. He's an undeniably historical figure. Who would, who would have thought that we would actually have a modern time with guys like Dan Brown who, uh, and, and you know, shows like the, the In Search of the Historical Jesus as if he didn't exist? That could only exist in a culture that doesn't read much and that doesn't, has never been trained in how to think critically or to know how to, to look at an argument as to whether it's true or false. It's absurd the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ would stand up in a court of law. It's an undisputable fact. There's a, abundant evidence behind it. So, let alone doubting whether there was a Jesus. Uh, he, and even secularists know that, that no person has changed the, the course of human history more than the Lord Jesus Christ. So, the issue's not... If there is a Jesus, that's for that's really for kind of Looney Tune crazy people off on the fringe somewhere. Although you should still love them and try to help them come back from Looney Tuneness, uh, Planet Looney Tune or whatever. Uh, but the, you know the, the the real issue is who do you say I am? And all of life falls or rises on who you say Jesus is, even as a Christian. Your walk with God will depend on who you think Jesus is. You can be a Christian and have a diminished view of Jesus in your mind and in your heart and in your experience. And it will be getting the biblical Jesus in your, both in your mind and in your heart and in your experience that will revolutionize your walk with God. So that's what we're kind of looking at in, these, uh, in the last eight weeks. We've looked at a number of things about who Jesus is. Today we're going to continue in that line. I think we'll be on this maybe eight or ten more weeks, uh, this who is Jesus. Hebrews 3.1 is a really cool verse that just starts with two words, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, which means think about Jesus. So you're on good biblical grounds to uh, spend some time thinking about Jesus. <laughs> and uh, All right, so let's uh, get in today. Today we're going to start, uh, what I'm hoping I can get done in three weeks, uh, we're going to start looking at the ministry of Jesus Christ. Now, today we're going to look at uh, two particular aspects. I forgot to uh, change the line there next to the five. We're actually going to just look at the first two on that list, declaration and disciple making. Uh, we, I decided that was too much material to get into community building or, what, or, the, or the fact that he brings a full, not just theoretical salvation. Uh, that's uh, what we're going to get into next week. So today I want to look at the ministry of Jesus from two points of view, uh, that he made declarations 
at the outset of his ministry and throughout it to the end. In fact, you should be familiar with that because we spent two weeks on the I am declarations of Jesus when he basically said, I am that I am, in that, and he made himself equivalent to what to when God, Moses said to God, who shall I say sent me? And, and God answered in Exodus 3.14, I am sent you. Jesus says, I am nearly 40 times in the Gospel of John. So um, we looked at that for two whole weeks uh, and, and covered 20-some of those things. So um, you're familiar a little bit with the concept of the declarations. Then we're going to just give a kind of an introduction to disciple-making and uh, something that uh, needs to be recovered in our day. We, we have discipleship groups. Um, but it's kind of like our understanding of grace and many other subjects. It's, it's true and biblical, but it just doesn't go far enough in terms of what real biblical discipleship is. So we'll look at Jesus and how he made disciples. Now, before I do, I want to remind us of two things we've covered. Uh, first thing is just the magnitude of, the, of our master and his ministry. There's no way I can do this in one week because... Uh, Here's what John uh, says in the very last line of his great gospel account of the life of Jesus. The very last line ends with, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, not just that he talked about, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. So I'm in pretty good company, I think, with saying I can't cover this in one week. <laughs> because John's saying not even the books, all the, the world itself could contain the books if we covered it exhaustively. Good thing I'm just going to cover it in an introductory way. In Acts 1.1, uh, Luke starts his great uh, treatise on the history of the early church by saying, uh, the first account I wrote to you, Theophilus, there's a debate whether that's a real person or a symbolic person, because Theophilus means lover of God, uh, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Jesus always did what the uh, priests of the Old Testament were called to do. He always did what the prophets did. He always did what the judges and kings were supposed to do, many of whom did not do these things, but some of whom, like Ezra, in Ezra 7.10, it says that Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to practice it, translate do it, and to teach it in Israel. And Jesus very clearly did it before he taught it. We all have a little bit of a gap in our experience where we teach more than we do. Uh, and so uh, part of what we're trying to do in terms of growing in the Lord is to narrow that gap. Over time, uh, because the goal of the Christian life, Paul, you know, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Can we say that? Paul said, be an imitator of me as I am of, as of Christ. He actually went so far to tell Timothy, the things that you've observed, learned, and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will dwell with you. Can you tell, say that when you're witnessing to someone? <laughs> Just live like we live, and you'll have all sorts of abundant life that Jesus came to give. So, uh, all the things Jesus did couldn't be contained in the world itself. I'm going to try to give you an introduction to it in three or so weeks. 
1 Corinthians 2, 15 through 16, Paul says, We're a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved. Among, I already, I already, right. we're, oh, so to one, we're an aroma from death to death. Skip back up a line. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? Or ESV and New King James say, who is sufficient for these things? And he goes on to talk about in chapter 4 that our sufficiency is from God. And, it's, and he says an amazing thing. We have this treasure, that is the life of God, the wisdom of God, the insight of God, the knowledge of God, supernatural, transrational, beyond human experience things. We have this kind of treasure in jars of clay, some translation, body, in, in earthen bodies, so that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. You know, as the Christian life, uh, Paul rebukes the Corinthians because they're living like mere men. So you really, really, sometimes you need to take stock of your life. Sometimes say, is my life like living like a mere human being? Um, that should not be the case for a Christian. Now, so the first thing I just want to say is that, you know, Jesus' ministry, we're not anywhere going to near do it justice in three weeks. We're just going to scratch the surface, hopefully getting you a start. What I try to do when I teach, by the way, is I try to give you uh, glasses so that if you're a diligent studier of God's Word, you'll get more out of it when you study it. I don't try to cover anything exhaustively. I try to help you begin to see, and the payoff will be if you can remember the things we teach while you're studying and taking your study to another level. So, second thing I want to remind us of is that we talked about, I think, two weeks ago, is that Jesus is our principal pattern. Now, I couldn't decide whether I wanted to use the word primary, primal, principal, but he's the pattern. <laughs> All good alliteration. Uh, we remember we covered in the, the Lagos and the I Am teachings what an archetype in a, in a uh, quintessential meant and archetypical and so forth. He's, he's, he is the model for everything. The church, discipleship, what it means to love God. Jesus is the model for everything. The progression of the Christian life, Jesus was born of the Spirit. Uh, he was later water baptized and encountered the Spirit in a much greater dimension when it descended on him like a dove. He went through a testing process that we talked about. That was the whole message last week, J Jesus' temptation in the wilderness until he came out doing the things that we're going to start to talk about today. So, uh, again, Jesus said in John 13, If I, I, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, so you also ought to wash one another's feet, I gave you an example, and that Greek word could be translated a type or a pattern or a model. I gave you the prototype. If you want to look like, know what a human being should look like, study Jesus. If you want to know what a Christian should look like, study Jesus. If you want to know what your life should look like, study Jesus. Don't look in your navel and contemplate, you know, being all circumspective and this kind of thing. Study Jesus. So, um, 
Peter talked about how Christ left us an example by his suffering. Uh, not a preachable point in our day and age if you want to sell any books or anything. Uh, but the uh, many the hundreds of commentators uh, point out that we don't have any theology of suffering in our time. All right, so let's flip over and actually get into Jesus' ministry for the remaining 28 minutes. Of course, John's not here, so I could be a little ornery. <laughs> and J Jason must have gone downstairs. <laughs> I might as well just get a button. You know, there, there was a preacher friend I had, had used to have that uh, he used to put a lifesaver in his mouth every week. And when the lifesaver was fully dissolved, that he, that he ended his sermon. It was over. One week he accidentally put a button in there and spoke for three hours. But uh, <laughs> no, just a joke. Uh, no extra charge. Um, Jesus begins his ministry by announcements, by declarations, by proclamations, when we use the word preach, I kind of hate that word, to be honest, because we've kind of religiousized it, and we think of something that we do only in the church, only to Christians. The, the evangelist comes and preaches to, preaches to the Christians uh, in, to have a revival to try to get the Christians saved <laughs> or whatever. I don't know all the logic of it, but that's kind of what we think about with preaching. Jesus made these declarations both in the synagogue and in the marketplaces. He made them in, in the, on the Sabbath day in the synagogue, as we'll see, and he made them on, on the mountaintops. And he one time had, uh, got in Peter's boat and put it out a little bit from the shore so no one could crowd him and uh, spoke from a boat. So... Uh, it, what, you know, and, and what he said was declarations. We have a tendency to share the gospel like uh, some people sell Girl Scout cookies. You wouldn't want to buy any Girl Scout cookies, would you? <laughs> uh, that's not, not a great uh, technique. Uh, you know, Jesus declared the gospel of the kingdom. And it was like a sword coming down. You're going to get on one side of the blade or the other. And here, here's the gospel of the kingdom. You can accept it. You can reject it. You can't alter it. And you can't, uh, no matter how many books you print in, in Christian bookstores and how many Christian TV shows, you, you, know, you can alter it in people's minds and hearts, but it's still going to be in the Bible and in the gospel. And with diligent study and a people who take it seriously, it can be restored because the foundations are always the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So let's look at some of these things. Jesus declares his identity in Michigan, mission, Michigan. It's been hanging around Logan too long. Uh, Jesus declares his identity and mission in the synagogues of Nazareth and Capernaum. So the very first thing, remember, after the wilderness uh, temptations, which we looked at next last week, both Luke and, and Matthew give uh, different accounts of, of what Jesus did. If you blend them together, you'll see they're actually talking about the same thing with different emphasis, because Luke is the one non-Hebrew writer of the New Testament, and his emphasis is on how Jesus is the Son of Man. Jesus calls himself, Daniel 7, 13, the Son of Man, 38 times in the Gospel of Luke, because Luke is concerned with helping us know that God always intended to take the kingdom to the Gentiles, and God's primary thing he was upset about Israel was their prejudice against the Gentiles and their refusal to represent God accurately in their own holiness 
and to take the mission to be a, and, and cause his, his temple to be a house of prayer for all people. The reason that everyone thinks that the reason uh, Jesus was upset for uh, turning the money changers' tables over was that uh, they were marketing in the, in the church as if Jesus was against free enterprise. He's the one who said, thou shalt not steal, which means, reading the reverse negative, people steal, and God values private property and free enterprise. So he wasn't upset about that. He was upset that they were doing it in the court of the Gentiles, effectively blocking off the Gentiles' access to coming to Christ. They weren't, as Ray Nethery says, being a mediator of the presence of God to the nations around them. And that's why the whole point of Matthew's gospel is God's covenant lawsuit against Israel where he says, I've had it with you. I am now staying the message of every prophet. I am giving you the message of Moses. I didn't come to abolish the law, but to establish it. I'm giving you the message of the judges and the kings, and I'm standing on the shoulder of these great offices saying exactly what they said, and it's the final time because I'm taking the kingdom away from you, and I'm giving it to the nation that produces the fruit of it. And that's the whole point of the climax of Matthew from chapter 21 to 25. So both, both Matthew and Luke have some different uh, emphasis they're going after in their gospels. So Luke does, says this, and Jesus came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. If you know anything about uh, Israel in the time of Christ, I, should, I wish I thought about getting a map on a PowerPoint, but Israel had three main sections. The northern section was called Galilee. And in it was Nazareth, Capernaum, the Decapolis, and so forth. Uh, the center section called Samaria that the Jews avoided, they actually avoided so much that during, during the three festivals a year when the people from Galilee would go to the southern section called Judea, where Jerusalem and Bethlehem were and, and Beth Bethesda and so forth, they would actually cross the Jordan River and go down on the east side of the, of the river and then cross back over into Judea so they wouldn't have to go through Samaria. When Jesus travels back and forth through Samaria, he's totally breaking the religious traditions of his day, but, not, but he's doing it in accordance with what the scripture would say. By that very action, he's saying, you guys are interpreting the scriptures wrongly. And that's why he speaks to a Samaritan woman. So Jesus starts his ministry in Galilee where he was from. He was from a city called Nazareth. And Capernaum was a nearby city that most of the original uh, four disciples, Peter, James, Andrew, John, were from Capernaum. And he was teaching them in the, on the Sabbath, and they were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. Uh, Matthew adds, uh, not like, unlike their scribes, <laughs> unlike the teachers of his day. On the one hand, some people think this. On the other hand, some people think this. I don't know. Uh, Luke 4 Again, uh, up actually earlier, I kind of put them out of order because if you follow, the, put it back. Um, by the way, the New American Standard, my favorite translation, actually has a mistranslation in the, at the beginning of Luke 1 where it says that Jesus did all things in consecutive order. But the Greek doesn't mean that. The Greek means he, that, Luke, that Luke is giving us an orderly presentation of Jesus' ministry, but not necessarily like a modern book would in a consecutive order. So actually, that's actually proven by the wording of Luke 4. Luke 4 makes it quite clear 
that what we're about uh, to talk about happened after Luke 4.31. He first came out of the wilderness and spoke in the synagogue in Capernaum. Then he spoke in the, ne in the next Sabbath in the synagogue in, in um, Nazareth. And then he went back and spoke in Capernaum, the next Sabbath. I, I don't know if they were consecutive Sabbaths, but they were in, in that order. So in Luke 4, 14 to 21, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. That's a phrase that you'd be do well to study. The Greek word dunamis that we get dynamic and dynamite from. Uh, the Bible makes it clear that God intended all followers of Jesus to minister always through all the centuries at all times in the power of the Spirit, and it's supposed to look like the Gospels and Acts. And the news about him spread throughout all the surrounding districts. The idea that, that these things don't happen anymore is a modern uh, thought that comes out of two wrong paradigms. And one of them is just the anti-supernatural skeptical worldview that, that came to the Western culture in the Enlightenment, and it swallowed the church. Every missionary will tell you when we go to Africa, when we go to Central America, we heal the sick, we cast out demons, we do all these kinds of things, and then when we come back to the U.S. to raise money, we don't tell the churches about it <laughs> because it would hurt our fundraising. So God, if you know, get a book called Miracles and Manifestations of the Holy Spirit edited by Jeff Dole. And you'll see that over 10,000 testimonies written and documented of Christians throughout the centuries of miracles, healings, casting out demons, speaking in tongues, prophesying, uh, all words of knowledge, words of wisdom, all sorts of activities of the Holy Spirit. And if you really follow the same logic as, as C.S. Lewis used in the Mere Christianity about Lord, liar, or lunatic, and Josh McDowell copies that argument in his Mere Christianity, uh, under, more than a carpenter, he uses C.S. Lewis's great Lord, liar, and lunatic argument that Jesus didn't leave you the option that he's just a teacher he, because he, he claimed to be God. So he couldn't be a good moral teacher if he was lying. So he's either the Lord, like he said he was, or he's lying, or he was a crazy man. But the problem is, is all the major sects, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodotians, the Zealots, banded together to try to get Jesus to say one thing they could accuse him of for three and a half years. And at his trial, they had to bring false witnesses because he still hadn't said one thing they could accuse him of. Now, I don't know about you, but anyone who's been around me a lot, I, there are certain people in our church that have confronted me more than others. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, I say many a thing that uh, I could be brought to trial about uh, pretty much every day. <laughs> Get the loudest amen from my wife. <laughs> well, she knows. Uh, every fact shall be confirmed by two or three witnesses. So, um, <laughs> all right, so um, Jesus comes back to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. The news spread about him throughout the surround. And he began to teach in their synagogues. And originally he was praised by all. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogues on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book, found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. 
because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, actually the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the, uh, that sometimes, by the way, is translated wrongly in English tra uh, translation, the ruler of the synagogue. There was no ruler of the synagogue, but he was, there was an attendant or, of the synagogue. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, let me give you a little background on what's going on. Whenever it's in small caps, that's the New American Standards way of saying it's a quote from the Old Testament. He's actually quoting the first three verses of Isaiah 61, which is Bible speak for read the whole chapter. Whenever the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, it's assuming that you know and that you know it in context. So when you read quotes from the, New, of the Old Testament from the New Testament, go back and read that chapter that it's contained in. Get it in some context. So secondly, um, just at, when it says that on the Sabbath as his, was his custom, Jesus grew up in, 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 in uh, Nazareth. In Nazareth, as we're going to see, teach in the second service today, we're going to talk more. I'm going to do actually part two. John doesn't know I turned his message from last week into a series, but now it's a two-part series on catechism. And uh, we're going to look at how they catechized youth in the days of Jesus in Galilee. Ray's good friend Kevin Springer wrote an article that Ray was good enough to send me that helped me understand this a little better. And uh, if you know who Kevin Springer is, he's the uh, co-writer of all John Wimber's books and so forth. And he, uh, in the days of, 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 of Jesus, when a, when a young man grew up in Galilee and a young woman, they would actually be in the synagogue every Sabbath. And they were, they were catechized with a process where they were asked questions and they had to repeat the scripture verbatim. And they would memorize, uh, they would start with the goal of memorizing the law of Moses. When they had memorized Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, as we call them now, then they started memorizing all sorts of portions of the rest of the scripture, which the Jews sometimes called the Psalms and prophets. In other, in other contexts, they just called the prophets, the law and the prophets. But they had, the foundation was to memorize the first five books of the Bible. Every Hebrew youth had that memorized by the age of 12. The ones who got invited to follow the better rabbis, it was because they showed great promise by having most of the rest of it memorized. So when Paul was asked to be a disciple of Gamaliel, the leading Pharisee and rabbi of his day, it's because Paul had the whole Old Testament memorized by the age of 12. Take that to your catechism classes today. We're, you know, when we work in the schools and so forth, we're trying to get people so they can read by the age of 12, let alone have it memorized. So once a child hit 12, if they had their catechism memorized, they were eligible to enter the world of adults. The Jews still call that bar mitzvah today. And in Luke 2, when Jesus is taken by his parents, as they all did for the three great festivals of the year, and he's taken by his parents for Passover to, to Jerusalem, and they go back in the caravans. Jesus decides to have his bar mitzvah. 
right there in the temple with the leading scribes and Pharisees of his day, and he's in the temple asking them questions, and they were asking him the catechism questions, and they were amazed at his answers, not only for the memorization, but the process was when you were of age, you not only had it memorized, but you would quote a portion that's memorized, then you would comment on it. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing in this passage. Now, there's actually debate as to whether, um, because in the synagogues, there was actually a regular schedule of which adult was to, to comment. And so there's a debate as to whether Jesus actually, this was his week. Or there was also a tradition that if, other, if rabbis came through and so forth, they would ask them, would you like to read a portion and would you like to comment? Now, there's some debate as to whether they had to stay with the scheduled readings or whether they were free to choose their own readings. Likely, God in his sovereignty caused the Isaiah 61 to be the scheduled reading. And likely, Luke is just giving you a snippet, and he actually read the whole passage. But then Jesus gives his first sermon. He has a quite a different gifting than I do because he was able to give his sermon in one line. <laughs> You'll never get that out of me. Uh, I promise. <laughs> Jesus hands him back the scroll, and his sermon is today this Scripture has been fulfilled in your midst. Now, later uh, in Capernaum, he builds on that and talks about uh, uh, and begins to announce his global ministry, and they're so upset at him that right at the beginning of his ministry, they want to kill him. But it wasn't his time or hour yet. And he announces, actually in Luke 4, uh, he talks the whole story of how Elijah healed the, the widow who was not an Israelite and so forth. And he makes it clear that those who are of faith are the children of God. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. In John 8, he rejects the religious leaders because they're rejecting him. And he, and he basically is saying the same thing Paul argues in Romans 4 later, because he stole it from Jesus, uh, <laughs> that those who are of faith are the true sons and daughters of Abraham. And Jesus declares that from his very first sermons in, this, in Galilee, that the, the gospel was meant to be for all peoples. The law is full of provisions how to bring the alien and the sojourner from other nations into the people of God. It's always been about global mission, and it was because Israel kept forgetting that, that God was so upset at them, and that's a warning to us today. It's about missional. They say the average Christian today, I forget the percentages, but it's way up in the 80s, has never shared their faith or led someone to Christ. That can't be. All right, then Jesus, I got to move along better, not preach these points as enthusiastically as I'd like. Jesus proclaims the kingdom of God has arrived now and in his person. All through the Bible, read the great scholar George Eldon Land, for instance, and his understanding of, of the kingdom. 
or any other, or John Bright's The uh, the Kingdom of God, one, one of the great books. All through the Bible, they're, all Christians of whatever persuasion agree that the kingdom is already, and it's not yet. It has come in Christ, and it is coming, and it will come in greater ways. The debate is over how much it has come and how much will come before he comes back again. And Jesus wants to clear that up right from the beginning because Israel had fallen into uh, a concept that's very popular in our day called dispensational premillennialism, and they felt that the kingdom could only come by a great miraculous cataclysmic intervention of God where God would come and be Messiah in their midst and Emmanuel in their midst, which Acts 2 proves that he's both, and, uh, and that um, he would throw the Romans out and establish a geopolitical kingdom. Neither the Old Testament or the New ever had that idea. That was just the idea as it is today among 95% of Bible-believing Christians that it could only happen in some great geopolitical cataclysmic way. But the Bible's idea is it's right now in Jesus Christ. And it came in, in when he defeated Satan in the wilderness, and it came when he began to declare who he was, and it came in his miracles, and it came in a sinless life, and it came in his trial, et cetera, et cetera, and it came at Pentecost, and the kingdom of God is among us. And if you study church history, you'll find the, the, the groups that have emphasized the nowness of the kingdom have changed the world over and over and over again. And the, uh, the groups that have emphasized the not yetness of the kingdom have went into decline and decay and, and began to shrink. And pretty soon were churches full of people over 50 talking about the good old days when we saw God move when we were 20. That's happened hundreds of times throughout church history. That's kind of the whole point. So Jesus, stand, uh, just again, ahead of myself, let's just read the scripture for a minute. Now, when Jesus heard that John was taken into custody, he withdrew into, not Judea, Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, that's his hometown, he came and settled in Capernaum uh, by the sea where Zebulun and Naphtali are. Uh, from that time, Jesus began to proclaim or announce, declare, that's what the Greek means, and say, repent, which means turning away from self-determination in your own lordship that leads to sin and sins, specific sins, and turn toward obedience, submission, seeking to love and admire and worship God. That's what the word repent means. Uh, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, some translations say has come near because the Greek word engizo, or engizo uh, means that it's right here now in your midst. Now, one of the things that we lack in English um, is we have three verb tenses and English translations generally don't like combining verbs, which they would have to do to translate the Greek accurately. Greek has seven verb tenses. So this verse means the kingdom of God has come near, past, and is near now. 
It's right here in the person of Jesus. And if you study anything about, in a systematic way, about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit came to bear witness that Jesus is Lord. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit of God. The more of the Holy Spirit you have in your midst, the more your eyes will be open to see his kingdom and his lordship is here now. He, this, you can turn on the discouraging PBS news or the discouraging American news, whichever one you want, and he's reigning in the midst of it, and he's up to something. If you just watched the news in Jesus' days, you would have said, you know, these nasty Romans who uh, have gladiator fights and, and their entertainment from city. You know, the Colosseum wasn't just in Rome. It was in every major city of the Roman Empire. They love blood. They're, 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 we have bloodthirsty video games. They had the real deal. Uh, we have underground human trafficking. They had legal human trafficking. They were a cruel and harsh taskmaster. We have imperial influence throughout the world and troops everywhere and so forth. They had, were actually ruling, not trying to exercise spheres of influence to get economic advantages. So if you were to watch the news, I doubt you'd get any coverage on there's this itinerant rabbi who has 12 main followers and another band of people that seem to fluctuate in numbers when he goes from Galilee to, Jer to Judea, somewhere between 70 and 120 people or so. I doubt that was like a big deal in most people's eyes. But that was the most important thing happening in the history of the world. What is actually going on is not going to be on the 7 o'clock news. The revolution will not be televised. Not even on Christian TV. Especially not on Christian TV. So... Uh, Jesus declares who the true people of God are, who they always were, and who they will be. And I've already touched on that in Luke 4 when he talks about the widow and so forth. And he basically is saying uh, that's why he healed the Syrophoenician woman. After he told her, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but he cast the demons out of her daughter, uh, even though she was a Canaanite, because she answered in faith. And so he realized, oh, this woman is a true daughter of Abraham, even though she comes from Tyre and Sidon. And even though she's not biologically Jewish, my father by his spirit has given her faith in my goodness. And she answered, even the dogs get to eat the crumbs from the master's table. So he recognized her as a true daughter of Abraham. And that's why he cast the demons out of her daughter, because you have to be a true son of Abraham. You have to be a born-again member of God's family to have a right to deliverance. Now, well, John's not here, so I'm going for it. <laughs> Number C, Jesus calls disciples to follow him. I'm going to have to not preach this, which I'm stirred up this morning. Part of a coffee, vitamin B12s, and not getting to bed till 5 a.m. But uh, that, that usually gets me jacked up a little. I, I got some adrenaline going this morning. It's a good thing I don't have any weapons, but uh, except the Word of God. 
<laughs> Thank you, Jesus. All right. So, Jesus right away starts to make disciples because that was what it was always about. It was never, as we're going to see in the second message, about making decisions. It was never about sinners' prayers. It was never about assuring people because you made this decision, no matter what happens, whoever, how you live, whether it was real, whatever, you're, you're good. <laughs> the reason there has to be so much emphasis on assurance is because people are not that clear because it's not necessarily the case that they've really become disciples of Jesus. And there's no, as Dallas Willard points out in his uh, tremendous book, The Great Omission, sitting right back on the back shelf there on the list, uh, there was no, there, we have made it a modern doctrine that you can accept Jesus as Savior and the rest of your life you can consider the optional extra of making him your Lord and becoming his disciple. There is no biblical warrant for such an idea. That is completely cultural and completely evil. And it is completely killing people. And it has caused the church that's supposed to be the pillar and support of the truth to be subordinating perjury and becoming the pillar and support, supporter of the lie. Study the concept sometime of the lie in Scripture. And unfortunately, uh, that's unfortunately a great deal of what the church's message in our day is. And I don't mean to be harsh. I just love the church and want to see it be what it's supposed to be. Now, Jesus, there's a couple of things I want to bring out about discipleship, and then I'll quit. I'm, I'm not, you can go through all the verses I've gotten here, but I'm just going to give you the points. And hopefully, you'll think these points are worth it to have future to, to study more. Okay, can I make that deal with you? Hopefully you'll study these more. Number one, Jesus' whole ministry, uh, I didn't actually, I just put this in a side note, three ministries. Jesus' whole ministry constantly emphasizes three ministries you're supposed to have, we're supposed to have together. First, the ministry to God. Your ministry to God is more important than your wife, your schoolwork, anything. Secondly, your ministry to one another in the body of Christ. Now, we happen to live at a time in history where the body of Christ is extremely broken and fragmented, so almost all responsible Bible teachers agree that you have to have priorities in what it means to be committed to, the, to, to minister to the body of Christ. You should first minister to a local body that has plurality of elders, accountability, uh, that it's moving, that's, you know, whatever is born of God is overcoming the world and so forth, that there's clear signs of the fruit and progress of God. And, uh, but you should minister whenever you can to all Christians. You know, prayer, you know, I, you know, I had a talk with somebody on Friday who was at a prayer meeting with some other Christians. I'm like, great. That's what we should, you know, is whenever it's possible, help every Christian you can along. Let's be as united with our fellow Christians as we can. Uh, thirdly, every Christian has a ministry to the lost, the fallen, the hurting, the poor, the confused, the damaged, and so forth. And as I'm going to argue in the next message, you won't be able to have that ministry if you don't get more educated about your faith because you won't be able to do them any good. You got to have something to give them and you got to store that up by study. 
Next thing I want to make you understand is there are three kinds of discipleship. Today, almost no churches actually have discipleship. We leave that to parachurch ministries like campus ministries and, and Christian universities and so forth. But the biblical model was that discipleship should be a major part of what the community of the New Testament church looks like, and that everyone should have someone who's their mentor, teacher, friend, supporter, advisor, even spiritual father, confronter, encourager. You could actually put John and Gray and me together and he can encourage you and I'll confront you. <laughs> and uh, everyone needs that. So, but even within when their discipleship does exist, it is primarily informational in our day. Now, I'm going to talk all about the importance of information, but it's got to also tra uh, get down into your heart, into your experience, and into your way of life. It's got to change you. So uh, discipleship in the Bible was informational, it was formational, and it was impartational. Now, I've developed that elsewhere to lots of people, especially in our discipleship training, and I gave you some scriptures to get you started. I'm going to end here because we're, we're already seven minutes past time, and we need to get started again as soon as Leah and Deanna are ready to lead us in worship. But uh, I wish I had been able to develop how Jesus made disciples more. Maybe I'll do that next week. I'll think on that. Amen.